We take time weekly to read from the Word of God. We're bombarded with spam and junk mail, aren't we? How much stuff do we just throw away or delete because it's worthless? But I can tell you, every time you open this book, or your app, whatever you're using, when you read the Word of God, not a word is worthless. These are words from God Himself. So let us hear and let us listen. Mark 3, 13 to 19. Then he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. This being Jesus. And he appointed the twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These words are God's words. Amen. For Junior Church, and Pastor Mark's going to come and teach. Well, as the exodus occurs, the mass exodus, what a blessing, isn't it? To have that many kids, it's a gift. Well, as we, as we go there, please turn to Mark chapter 3. I know we just read that together. Let me just pray for us. Lord... This is your church, not the building. It's the people. And it's those, those little people who just walk down the stairs and their parents who are with them. It's our oldest and most revered members. Lord, we are your church. Your church meets in this place. That means that we're your people. And as your people, we just ask that you would work today. Remind us of who we are. Call us to uh, your heart. Lord, help us to be transformed more and more into your image because we spend time with you. Please help those that maybe that, that may feel weighted today lord please help those who feel separated from you today isolated lord help them to realize that you're the jesus you're the god who comes and calls them to be with you so encourage our hearts today 
we pray. Because of Jesus, through the power of Your Spirit. Amen. So what are we here for as a church? Well, you can see the elements of authentic Christianity. What we're saying is there are three key elements that we are all about. Jesus, community, and mission. That's it. Now, Jesus comes first, right? Jesus and His work on your behalf. Everything else flows from that. So, so here's the Gospel again. I hope that you hear the Gospel here all the time. <clears throat> but Jesus has so given Himself to us that He can't take Himself back. He lived the perfect life for us that we've never lived. He died the guilty death for us that we don't want to die. Jesus alone is why the all-holy God above, without lowering His standards at all, freely forgives us and gladly receives us. The reason why is not what's in our hearts towards God, but what is in God's heart towards us. We don't come to church to improve ourselves. Instead, we're actually free to come to church in our failure, in our confusion, in our depression, in our numbness, in our sin. We are here to receive what only Jesus can do for us. So we don't bring our strength and we don't bring our success. But we really lift the empty hands of faith and we receive grace upon grace. So we'll say it this way. Wyndham Baptist Church is not for victorious Christians. This church is for all the people who really don't perform well. Here's the good news. It's just at the heart of the Bible. Jesus said in Matthew 9, verse 13, I came to call, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. It's good news, isn't it? We we come to Jesus that way. We live with Jesus that way. And if you've given your heart to him, When you walk into heaven, you're going to say, you mean it really was that simple? Just the blood of Christ for me and nothing more? Not my performance at all? (laughs) Hallelujah! And that's why walking into heaven right beside us will be Drug dealers and uh, crooked lawyers and strippers and underachievers and deadbeat dads and so many other sinners who came to the point in their lives where they despaired of themselves and they cried out to Jesus to save them. And He did. Jesus said, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Are you willing to believe that? Are you willing to believe that you don't need your own performance anymore? That you only need Jesus? Remember we said last week, Jesus is all I need. Are you ready to believe that again for some of you? You know, if so, you can just tell him right now, Lord Jesus, you are all I need. You're all I want. I receive you. So we begin first with Jesus. But now community. What we're going to do is we're going through a series right now called Jesus Community Mission. This last week was Jesus, this week's community, next week's mission. We're going to repeat that same pattern three times total, okay? So we're going to go through Jesus Community Mission. It's really what we are all about as a church. The great thing about this is nothing has changed here in seven years in the direction that we've been headed. We try to say it in some, some different ways, some interesting ways, ways that would help you to understand where we're headed to more. You know what has changed in seven years? Can I just say this? You and I have. Do you realize how different we are? I, I love to see how much we have changed. To hear people talking about Jesus to hear people sharing stories this morning about uh, getting to share about Jesus' love and His mission while they're at the airport uh, yesterday in a conversation they didn't have to be involved in, and yet they, just, they couldn't help but engage to want to help present Jesus well. I know some of you have reoriented your entire week this week because you love your friends and your neighbors and you want them to know Jesus. We've changed. We've become more hopeful. We become more graceful. We become uh, more forgiving. We become more on mission. Some of you have become far more um, aggressive in stomping out your own sin. So this has not led to people who are who are disengaged. It's led to people who are more engaged. So our direction hasn't changed. But we're going to see, I think, why today, why this continues to be, I don't know, to me, a really exciting place to see growth and transformation. So Jesus, the second part is community. Today we're going to talk about community. Why community? Why? Because we realize that Jesus isn't out to save individuals. Jesus is out to make a whole new community. It's called the church. The best advertisement for Jesus is the beauty of human relationships in a healthy church. Amen? And the worst advertisement for Jesus is a bad church. We all know that. The problem really is widespread. So we can't just import into WBC just the patterns of the past. Those well-worn paths have really become ruts. The churches that are making an impact today are venturing into old ways in new ways. More biblical ways. More intentional ways of being 
the church. Healthy churches look like the gospel. Healthy churches are shaped by the gospel. Healthy churches look like good news for bad people. What kind of church does the gospel create? Because the gospel and the church, they go together. The church is not only the voice for the gospel, not just the place where we preach it, but the church is also part of the work of the gospel. People see you and they begin to wonder what God is doing in the world. Because they start to hear our story and they find out that we are people who are desperately in need and probably pretty different than what they thought. Amen? So that's what we're working on. That's where we're here. That's why we're going to turn to Mark chapter 3. And really our focus is going to be on verses 13 through 15. And what I wonder today, what I want to try and answer the question is, is this. What does it mean to follow Jesus together? What does it mean? If it's all about Jesus, what does it mean to follow Jesus together? And what I want to do is draw a pretty clear picture, I hope, for us once again to say this is what it looks like for us together. So in John chapter, in, in Mark chapter 3, beginning at 13, uh, Josh just read this for us, but it says, and when he, he went up on the mountain and he called to him those whom he desired and they came to him. Now I want you to listen. Because there's two big movements inside of this, and this is really where we're looking at together today. Verse 14, and he appointed 12 whom he also called apostles. Why? What was Jesus' purpose in calling apostles? Why did Jesus gather a community around him? What was he looking for? Two things are going to stand out here, right? So that, whenever we ask why, these words, so that, so that they might be with him. And, so that's number one, right? Jesus called 12 men, apostles, so that they would be with him. Think about that for a second. There's a second movement in here, isn't there? And, that he might send them out to preach. So he called them to be with him, and he called them to go out, to be sent by him. Let me ask this word. Is the word and then in the passage? Okay, what would that be significant of? If it said he called them to be with them, and then to be sent by him, what would that indicate to us? Right, there's a timetable to this, that, that Jesus called them, okay, be with me for a little while, then you guys go do your own thing, and I'm going to go do my thing. But that's not what he called them to. Instead, he's calling them to two things, right, that are going to be going on. We're going to take a look at that. I also want to point this out, and I want to just ask this question. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but it also says, and 
to have authority to cast out demons. Why is that in there? Why did Jesus give them authority to cast out demons? Doesn't that seem a little early in the whole, in the whole story? Josiah, did you have an answer? Okay. Yeah, demons really do have an impact on our world. They can make people seem crazy. They can impact things deeply. Just in case you haven't been here, this is a church where you're allowed to answer questions and you're also allowed to ask questions. And it really doesn't matter how old you are. We love it. Okay, so that's just something that that we do. um, and, And we're grateful for that. Let's make this point. When we look at this aspect of community at its basic level, what we're going to see is Jesus' key intention. When it came around time to do His ministry, what He did was say, listen, I'm calling you. And I'm calling you to be with Me. And I'm sending you. And I'll give you everything you need to do that. Isn't that good news? Because do you think Jesus has changed his mind since then? It's possible. Maybe Jesus looked up after those 12 and he kind of said, let's find some other way to do this. It's possible. It's possible that he sat there and said, boy, let's just wait until 21st century Maine, United States, because they will do this better. You know, if we could just do it on video. If we could just get the information across, more education, right? That's what people need. That's not what Jesus did, and he has not changed his heart or his mind. My goal is not to unpack everything about community, but my goal today is to say, what is the calling of community on your life, especially as we consider this passage? So let me simply say this. Jesus called them to be with him and that he might send them out. Jesus called them to follow him and be a disciple. This series is springing out of the story-formed way that we did for 10 weeks where we took the entire Bible and we told really the key core story that went through the Bible. And we're saying, what were the the things that really kind of rose to the top as we went through that story? What were the main storylines? Jesus, community, and mission. Jesus has called us to be in community. But one of the last sessions in the story-formed way was that Jesus called people to be disciples. If you are a follower of Christ, you are a disciple. It's not whether or not you want to be one. It may be a question of whether or not you're a good one. Right? But Jesus called us to be with him, to follow him. But Jesus also called them to fish for others, to be a disciple who makes disciples. And and Jesus' followers would have heard it like this. He would have heard them say, they would have heard him say, make disciples. You keep following me closely so that I can send you to help others follow me closely. And then 
you can send them to. God is deeply relational. He is not only educational. He is deeply relational. And I know some of us feel stress when we talk about that. Because what's the, what's the reality of my life? Well, I can impact, I mean, I can impress people from a distance, right? If I can keep you at a distance, I can keep you away from my weaknesses and my faults. If I show you what I wish you would see, you might be impressed with me. But what happens as we let people draw closer and closer into who we really are. Like marriage. Do we get, in a sense, we get more and more impressed, but what else really becomes true as we get to know each other in marriage? Yeah, they get to see who we really are. Right? They get to see insecurities or or difficulties self-centeredness when when we walk closely and it's not just marriage because think of good friendships if you're close to someone how about siblings how about parents with kids or kids with parents The longer we spend with someone intimately, getting to know them, it's more likely that who we really are, our failures, our flaws, the areas we wish weren't true, are going to become clear in focus for those that know us. And in fact, there's some people in our world who, for that very reason, make sure they keep people at a distance because they can't risk letting someone know who they are. But Jesus doesn't say, stay away from me. What does Jesus say? Jesus says, I want you to be with me. I want you to be close to me. And when you are close to me, I will see your faults. You're right. But you know what? Unlike others, I will not destroy you for your faults. Instead, I will take your faults. I will take your sin. And I will transform you. As you spend time with me, you will become like me. Isn't that encouraging? What I want us to see is this. Number one, 2,000 years later, after Jesus called the apostles to himself, disciple-making, it is still relationships. Period. Disciple-making is the relationships. But for many of us, discipleship has really been reduced to teaching people certain beliefs about God, helping them to accept Christ as Lord, and then educating them into doctrinal truth later on. Jesus lived transparently in front of His disciples in order to teach them how to live. They, in turn, went on to live transparently before others, 
humbly teaching them the way of Christ. The goal of community is not just information. It's transformation. That's why God uses community. Now there's a couple key phrases here that I'd love for us to see. One of them is not in this passage, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a concept. There was a book that I read on my sabbatical last year called um, Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus. I highly encourage you to read it. Uh, Spedberg and Spangler were the, were the authors of this book. And, and again, I've put it on the blog already and stuff, but I can get it to you again. Very helpful to get a, a first century look at who Jesus was. But we've got to understand a few key things here. First of all, there was, I don't use many uh, Hebrew words or Greek words because I figure it doesn't help anybody because most of us don't remember them. Um, and since you're not Hebrew or Greek, it doesn't help you. But here's one Hebrew word at least. Yeah, sorry, Mike. Um, there, there are some, okay? But here's, here's one of those words. It, it, it was a, a first century word, and it's been used even till today, a Hebrew word called haverim. And haverim is, is an intentional relationship. Two or three students who partner to study and discuss religious texts. That's the idea of Havram. Okay? Um, what I want us to see is this was Jesus' calling on the disciples. When he called the twelve, he called them to be with them, but he not only called them to be with him, who else did he call them to be with? Each other. This was a common technique for a rabbi during those days. A lot of times when we think rabbi, we think of this great teacher and everyone pulling out their iPads and taking notes and trying to get it all written down. But instead, a a rabbi would go out and he would teach people as he walked and talked and he would call his disciples to live with him, to walk with him, to be with him. And the greatest calling of their lives was to become like him. But he also called them into a relationship where they discipled each other. There was, an, uh, there was a phrase during that day where they would say, hey, if you have two or three disciples, that's where you really understand your rabbi. Isn't it interesting that in Matthew 18, verse 20, Jesus said, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This was not a radically new concept for Jesus. Instead, this was Jesus saying, listen, I'm calling you to disciple each other. Calling you to help each other. In the the book that I I mentioned there, Spangler and and Svedberg, they have this quote. It says, our Western minds may struggle with this idea. We tend to believe that the only way to encounter God is through a solitary prayer and study. But Jesus implies that his presence will be felt most often in the presence of a small group or haverim. How often do you gather with one, two other people to kind of walk together through God's word to study and to pray? In our Western mindset, we sit there and say, no, the ideal is to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And we are called to have a personal relationship with Jesus. But does that mean an exclusively private relationship with Jesus? When Jesus called his apostles, why do you think Peter, James, and John, why do you think their names stick out the most? 
Yeah, Peter was the predominant leader among the disciples. But let's also note this. Those guys probably participated in Havron. They lived together. They worked together. They connected together. We forget what Jesus' daily life was like. Just think about it. Most of his ministry was spent living side by side with his faithful disciples slash apprentices. Apprentice is a way better picture of how they saw education than the way that we see education. Bruce. Mm. Right. right great and that's exactly it his words weighed heavily on them but his day by day living think about it they were traveling with him everywhere he went on foot from town to town they camped out everywhere that they went many an evening would have been spent sharing uh, a meal with strangers who had generously invited them into their homes, and that was the custom of visiting rabbis. They would have been so intimately connected into his life. So they wouldn't have just heard, you should love your neighbor. What would they have experienced? Love, time and time again. They wouldn't only have experienced Jesus saying, you should speak truth to your neighbor, they would have experienced it time and time again. Love and truth perfectly melded. What we need to understand is this. Following Jesus means sharing our lives in community, and that's where the richness of life will unfold. Do you believe that? Because it seems to me when I grew up in the church, a lot of times this was a concept that simply meant fellowship, which was well-defined by one of my classmates at the Christian school that I went to. Her definition of fellowship was a Christian party. So the idea was, obviously, all we drank was juice and maybe soda if we were kind of wild. And, you, and you, could, you could have cookies and fellowship, right? We had fellowship times when I grew up in the church. Fellowship time on Sunday night after the Sunday evening service. And, and we, would, we would run. We would play. We would, we would connect. We would, we would do these things. But it was very, very unusual to ever sit with somebody else and talk through where I'm at in relationship to my faith with Jesus. The picture I grew up with in, in church as a young person, which maybe some of you have grown up with, the same picture, was that discipleship was this unique thing that happened. And what happened was you had an old guy who, uh, who looked and, and probably smelled like Yoda, okay? And somehow he would walk down the hallway at you, 
And then suddenly, and these were the stories, the only stories I encountered with this were a few key stories. And he would walk up to you and say, mm, disciple you, I will. Mm. You know, and, and there was this strangeness to this and this, this glowing effect that this older man would walk up and say, I see potential in your life. I want to pour into you. I've mentioned before, I was the kid who walked through the halls of my church and of my Christian school wishing, waiting that would, that, that would happen. And I can tell you, in my case, it never did. Now, I can tell you the opposite for Josh. By the grace of God, Josh sent guy, God sent guys along to Josh who would, who would come and pour into his life. So I'm not saying my experience is the same as all of yours. But, but there was this image that you have this great teacher. And then what would you be? You'd be this open, this open cup. And I didn't know what that would quite be like if it ever did happen. I, I picture it would be like just sitting there and then they would say some word of wisdom. You know, and you'd be right down real quick and you'd hold on to it and keep it there. Here, here's what we've discovered about that. We think that's an important part to discipleship at Wyndham Baptist Church. And that there are some guys here that are really gifted to sit and open up areas of theology specifically with you to say, let me help you get people that you don't understand. Um, let, me, let me help you grow in certain areas that you don't understand. This happens in Sunday school classes, which I'll be honest, unfortunately some of you are not taking advantage of. Okay? This happens once in a while in personal relationships where we get to sit with this person. Here's what we run into, though. That is an important area of discipleship, but what we found is the person who's been discipled, when they get done with that kind of training with Yoda, are not capable of actually taking that and doing the same for the next person. Why? Because this person has this unique gifting this teaching ability where they can take a dry subject and breathe life into it so that we go oh yeah i get that and the problem for this guy here as he's been poured into is his wife asked him when he gets home what you guys study today oh we were talking about the doctrine of justification wow that's great what was it about well it was really good because because and he tries to tell her and, and then finally, in the end, he's like, well, here's a book. <laughs> I can't tell you what I learned. Here's a book. Maybe even worse, when somebody else comes and they says, okay, well, let me try and teach this person this myself. When, when he tries to become that teacher and another student comes along, the end result is not really love or passion for Jesus. It's confusion. To the point where this guy finally says to his student, well, you need to go back to this guy. You need to go back to my teacher because he can make this come alive. I can't. Now that's valuable. It is important. It has helped many of us to grow. What I'm concerned about is this. For many of us, if you ask this question, how many of you have been discipled? Now, let me just ask this question. Just raise your hand. How many of you would say, yeah, I've been discipled? Okay. It's about half. And there were very few that were like, whoa, yes. You know, there was, there, was, there was a lot of this going on. I think, maybe. 
one of the things that I missed out on and I didn't understand was growing up while I was waiting for Yoda. God gave me a lot of great friends who helped me grow. Discipleship not only happens this way, discipleship happens this way. This is what this concept of Havarim is all about. That I get to walk alongside of some others. I'm going to show you four traits, four Jesus-oriented traits that are our core to this and how this flows out in just a second. But let me just draw the image a little bit better here. When I was growing up, I had people. So, so here's one story. When I, when I was um, 16 years old, I went to Romney Bible Conference. And I went over there to go work as a counselor. And I went and I got my driver's license literally the day before. Okay, so I went to camp and I got there. And the first thing they did was say, okay, drive these housekeeping people all over the place. You're like, really? You're letting me drive a 15-passenger van? Okay, why not? Okay. So at camp, they obviously have different standards than they do in the church. Because at church, I mean, you can't even sneeze until you're 25, right? But here at camp, they're like, here, drive this. Go take these people, lives in your hands. Go ahead. We'll see. You know, and, and drive them around. So then they, they, they got us at camp. We started working up there, and they said, guess what? There are five cabins. We've got kids coming, but there's only four guys that are college age, and there's six of you. Two of us were right around 16. One of you is going to be a senior counselor. You're going to be in charge of the lives of 12-year-olds for the rest of the summer. Yeah. Now, this is not normal, okay? Just to understand, most camps don't operate this way except for in the mindset of like, oh, dear Lord, how are we going to make it today, okay? That, that seems to be a, a common thread. But, but they looked up and they said, okay, Mark, you get to be a senior counselor. Are you kidding me? Yes, you are now in charge of leading 12-year-olds. I was 16. Ask Matt Carrier because he's still alive, all right? He was in that first year. I was supposed to spiritually care for and shepherd this flock. I was supposed to make sure that they, like, survived, literally, physically, stayed alive. I was responsible for them for the entire summer. It was about seven weeks of different kids coming in and through. You know how we made it through that? There were no junior counselors. There was one, and his job was simply to give us a break. The day that we were supposed to have a break, he would cover us. You know how we survived that? We sat out at night. When we put the kids to bed, we sat out in kind of a common area in the middle of all the cabins around a campfire. And we prayed. And we talked about God's Word. And we discipled each other. There was no great teacher and there was no great curriculum, but it was a bunch of guys who were super dependent on Jesus just to stay alive that summer. That's how it happened. When I first got into, uh, I, I, and I can tell you stories through college, same things. When I first got into ministry, 
um, I went to Hartford, Connecticut and began to do ministry. I, I was not I was a business marketing major. I wasn't a ministry major. So when I got there and I found myself to be a youth pastor in a church working full time, I had to connect with some other pastors from the area and I contacted 10 other youth pastors in my area. And I asked them, hey, what should be my priorities, youth ministry? And most of them came out and said, let's just set up activities for you. And I thought, well, that's not really what the church is really first and foremost about. I need to know why, not just what. But God would give two or three guys who would come alongside of me and we would stumbly, we would we'd stumble forward blindly in God's word. We would ask questions. We would say, hey, my senior pastor told me this or here's an idea here. And we discipled each other. We mutually mentored each other. Now, these guys didn't walk down the aisle and sit there and say, you know, and, and, and say, I want to pour into your life. It took initiative on my part to say to them, let's get together. It took initiative on their part to say, let's get together. But I've got to tell you, these were powerful days in my life. And always have been. This is where Josh and I started together. Our relationship started at Taco Bell down the mall. Sitting down, eating. No, it's okay. I'm still alive. Taco Bell is good stuff. It's cheap ministry food. It's fuel. Okay? But, but we would sit there and we would talk. And we would shape each other and encourage each other. And that's what our relationship has been for all these years. I have grown so much. Because of his investment in my life. I think it's fair to say the opposite of that is true. If you reframed that question and said, boy, how many of you have been discipled? And you looked at it and you said, boy, how many of you have had other people who've come alongside you that have helped you to grow? Maybe there wasn't a common curriculum, but people who have walked with you, whether in a small group or whether they've done that in a smaller setting, like a Havram, like a triad, like a fight club, like a DNA group, whatever term you want to use with that, like salt and light. How many of you would say, you know what? Yes, I have been discipled. I hope all of us would say, man, I've had people come alongside of me. Sometimes we need to get away from this image of having the professional pour into my life. Sometimes we need to sit there and say, you know what? God gave me my wife because she helps me grow. God called us to be with Him together in mutual community. Following Jesus means sharing our lives in community. And that is where the richness will unfold. So let me, let, me, let me ask this question. What does being with Jesus together look like? What does that look like? Well, let me give you four, um, four things that you, can, that you can look for. Here's the four uh, practices that we see in Jesus' life as he walked with the disciples. We see these constantly encouraged throughout the New Testament. They're simple. They're clear. Okay, we need to see this, but this is about following Jesus together. And you might even be able to guess most of these. But one of the key things that disciples of Jesus always do is they study Scripture together. 
That may not mean that you break out all the commentaries and you dig into every single word. But one of the most common realities of discipleship is simply that we read God's word together and we talk about it. Do you have people in your life that you read God's word with? Some of us feel a need to overcomplicate all this. Husbands, if we're looking at it saying, boy, how do I grow in my relationship with my wife? Parents, if you're trying to think, how do I begin to disciple my kids? Uh, What would would we do in a fight club or a triad? Sometimes we call it where three people get together to grow together spiritually. What do I do? Hey, let's just keep it simple. What if we just read God's word together? prayed for God's help, and discussed what we see in God's Word. Let me remind you, for some of you who really struggle to read God's Word on your own, part of that may be because you're not reading it with others as well. You may be missing out. Jesus, again, didn't call them to simply be alone. He actually called them to be connected. Have you ever found, let me, maybe we can ask it this way. Have you ever found it easier to read God's Word when you're reading with other people? And to have it be meaningful. To have it be open. Some of you are so much beating yourself up because you read God's Word and it doesn't seem to make any impact on you. What if God's saying, hey, Let's get together with some other people too. So reading God's Word, studying God's Word. You can see the opposite side of that though, praying. We pray together. Right? Prayerfulness. Constantly. Remember, you you saw Jesus' apostles saw Jesus constantly reading Scripture. They saw Him praying. But they also said, hey, we see you praying so much. You're praying with us so much. Teach us how to pray. They became more like him. Prayerfulness is the second key. The third one, loving extravagantly. Loving extravagantly is the third one. These opportunities to experience love and to express love. Again, that's part of following Jesus together. The fourth one is life as worship is understood. This one just take a little second longer, Colossians 3.23. So whatever you do, in word or deed, whatever, whatever it is that you do, do it all to the glory of God. One of the fourth characteristics that we do as we help each other is to figure out how do I make it through this stage of my life as an act of worship to God. Worship is not simply singing on Sunday morning. Worship is not only music that is far too Small definition. We saw last week that there's a lot of false forms of worship. But most of those things can be done as acts of true worship. Had one of our young ladies call me the other day, and I won't call her out by name, but it was awesome because she called and said, Pastor, I'm really worried. I said, what are you worried about? She says, I'm really worried because I think I'm too happy. 
man, I, I just, you know, there are bad things that are going on in our lives. There's things that we're struggling with, but you know what? And, and they've got young kids. And she said, I, I know all that, but, but overall, I'm just really happy. And, and maybe something's wrong in my life. Maybe I'm missing something. So we talked about it. Are there areas of sin that you need to repent of? And, and there weren't any that she knew of. I'm like, then maybe I just need to be happy. Maybe when you change baby diapers, maybe that's just a sign that that's an act of worship to God. And that that is just as glorifying as preaching a sermon. And maybe when you do your work as to the Lord, as a life of worship to God, that that work that you do, even though you don't see how it connects, say, to the church, that that act of worship is just as valid as leading music. We need to help each other figure this out. We don't walk into this saying, oh, I've got this all figured out. Instead, we walk to each other and say, hey, I'm really struggling right now to see how our lack of finances is an act of worship to God. Can you help me figure out how to glorify God in this? Wouldn't that be encouraging? Wouldn't it be nice for once not to have to have all the answers? Wouldn't it nice to have people speak truth into your life? Because these disciples of Havram would work together. They would wrestle through things. They would struggle through things. They would even disagree with each other, right? Isn't that part of having a real friendship? Instead of being alone with Jesus, when we meet with other believers, when we follow Jesus together, it gives us a chance to experience Jesus through his hands and his feet. So here's the four. Pray, live, love, and study. Are, are any of these too hard to do? They're not. You don't need Yoda for this. We can do this together. So, so then, what's the other part of this, though? Because we would sit there and say, some of us, well, I've spent time praying. I, I, I've spent time reading, and it didn't go anywhere. I'm broken. It may work for you. You're not broken. The other component in here is this. Let's see if I can get it to come up. What causes this all to gel and to click in? The power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit empowers, brings strength. He brings a charge. He causes this to work. So is it dependent? Just like your salvation, is your salvation dependent on your works? No. Is your growth dependent on your works? No. Who causes this transformation? Do you believe that the Holy Spirit wants you to know and experience love from Jesus? Do you really anticipate that? Let me just ask you that question. Honestly, you think about it. When you sit down in the morning to read your Bible, when you sit down to pray, maybe you're going to meet with somebody else uh, in this kind of smaller group or maybe in a missional community, when you sit down there, do you go in there saying, you know what? 
One of the things that we experience as we looked at God's Word is that God is the God who constantly comes and interacts and involves Himself. He's not the God who's moody, sitting off in a corner, waiting for us to get it right. Instead, He's the God who loves us and wants to be involved. Do you really believe that the Holy Spirit wants to be involved with you and help you in your area of weakness, in your area of struggle? Well, let me just say it. He does. He loves you. He is working for you to see God, to know God, to experience God. I want to encourage you this week to be waiting for Him to work. Not surprised if He would. Sometimes that attitude makes a big difference. Let me show you a couple other things. So, so I want to say there, the Spirit's active presence combines with my action. And we need to live lives that are filled with anticipation that God is about to work. God is about to work. Let me show you what this looks like just practically. Inflow. Inflow means that I live together in community with some of you, right? Especially through my missional community, through these smaller relationships, these haverum relationships. And as we experience life together, as we grow together, we spend time. So the key words are to be with, to receive, to grow, to abide in Christ. As I sit down with the, the men and um, with my family and with my missional community, what happens in my life is I get to be, I get to grow. This is pouring into my life as I spend time together with you following Jesus. It, it comes in. I get to experience Jesus' love. Okay? So some of the ways that you would do this, join a fight club or make one. Or, or call it a triad if you want. Or, or call it a DNA group. We've got a bunch of different names for this. But the idea is two or three people that get together to spend some time in God's Word, pray for each other. They're going to um, live lives of extravagant love, express love you know, to each other. And they're also going to help each other figure out how to live these lives of worship day in and day out. It's that simple. It's that simple. So those key words there. As we do that, though, as I live with you, know, with you together following Jesus, a second part begins to happen. Because as that flows into my life, what happens? I begin to overflow. There's so much there that I can't keep it in anymore. There, there's so much love and experience and understanding that, that that begins to overflow. So what happens when I begin to overflow? I, I continue to be with. But I also find out that I am also sent. I continue to receive, but now I'm also called to give. I continue to grow, but I'm also called to bear fruit. I continue to abide, but I also continue to overflow. This 
here is the concept of Jesus said, hey, come be with me and be sent at the same time. This isn't like come in here, be part of the missional community, then rip yourself away from all those people and now go do something spiritual for Jesus. Instead, it's the idea that I continue to let this flow into my life. It's going to pour in this situation of overflow. And as that overflows, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to have to force myself to do this. Instead, as it flows up inside of me, I'm going to want to. And that's what I've seen in so many of your lives. You guys want to live on mission. So here's, here's what that begins to look like. We continue to be transformed into Jesus' likeness and we love and connect with people differently. Our transformation makes visible God's power and presence in our lives. So we begin to invest in intentional relationships that draw others into mutual community slash inflow. We begin to reach out. We don't just disciple believers. Who else do we disciple? We disciple people who are not yet believers. This begins to move us from a place where we say just about my growth. It begins to move us into a category where we go together to reach out to our friends. If you heard Kevin Luce when he was here talking about this with their friendships there in Boston, he was talking a lot about this. But as they grew together, it began to overflow into the lives of the people that they wanted to see come to know Jesus. So this second side, this overflow, is mission. Huh. Jesus, community, mission. And they're all so interrelated that you can't get away from one of them. So as we grow deep, it begins to overflow into lives of being sent. Lies where we sit there and go, I'm going to rearrange my Memorial Day. I'm not just going to make sure that my Memorial Day makes me happy. I want to use my Memorial Day to, to reach out to my neighbor who I care about. In, in school, some of you sit there, and if you have a few key friends, like with, with the Salt and Light Youth Ministry, right? You, you're with Jesus. You're receiving from Jesus. You're growing. You're abiding. You have these things going on. It begins to empower you to say, there's a kid who's sitting by himself, and people seem to be leaving him alone. Or there's a kid who's so popular, but people only love him for what he can do or can't do. I'm going to begin to reach out to them. It's the overflow that causes the wrecking to go out and raise funds to help stop human trafficking around the world. It's not being great rock stars and all the perks that come with it. Right, Doug? Amen. Okay. It's not the photo ops. It's not getting to be on stage that propelled them. It's the overflow of their relationship with Jesus that gets them to say, we can't help ourselves. We've got to make a difference in this world. You understand that? But as a band, they're going out together in Jesus. So Jesus' call, come be with me and be sent. Come be with me and be sent. There is a third stage, and we're not going to get into this one too much. But the third stage is this, multiply. Multiply is when we sit there and go, man, I love what Jesus is doing so much, I want to see it happen in my neighborhood. So maybe someone sits there and goes, wow, I need a missional community, and all of you need to be part of the missional community. We need to plan at least four, maybe five more missional communities within the next year. Some of you need to be trained and equipped 
to come with me so that we can begin to raise up more missional communities. And some of you have the heart for this. But a missional community goes into an area and says two things. Number one, we want to inflow and we want to overflow. So we go into a region and we say, I want to love my neighbors. I want to care about my neighbors. I want to build community where we're going to grow as we study God's word, as we pray, as we live lives of extravagant love, as we figure out how to worship God in everything. We begin to be transformed. So much so that we say, boy, I cannot keep this inside of myself. And that missional community leader says, help me reach my, help us reach this group of people. And a team of people gather around them and say, yes, let me help you reach those people. Your neighbors, your community, they may be my neighbors too, but we're we're, we're going after people. We're, We're living like missionaries right here in our own neighborhood. But what we're hoping inside of there is that somebody else sits there and goes, wow, I love seeing people come to know Jesus. I love seeing them grow. I love seeing how my gifts are being used now in this group because we're, you know, we're growing together. This group needs me. But I want my neighbors. I want my coworkers. I want the people who live near me to come to know Jesus. So they've been apprenticing, and then we say, go ahead, go. Take some people with you. Plant a missional community there. Do these same things. When we become the people who begin multiply is when we sit there and say, hey, go. Go. We want you to go be part of that. And we send people out. We equip. We help them be healthy enough to have two missional communities instead of one. That's the concept that we're thinking of. Bottom line is this. I know this can sound scary, but we've got to understand, we've got to believe that Jesus sits there and says, I'm not just the God who says you should be doing more for me. Jesus is the God who says, I have done for you. When we say, Jesus, I don't know if I can handle this. I'm afraid of being transparent with people. Jesus says, I'm the one who took away what you need to be ashamed of. And I'm transforming you into my image. Jesus is not the one who sits there like this sullen, angry father waiting for us to get our act together. Jesus is this engaged, loving partner who says, hey, come here with me. Come with me. Please understand his heart for you. He's not trying to churn out workers. He loves spending time with sons and daughters. And he wants his family to get bigger. We have not yet tapped into Jesus' love for this community right here. Will you make that your prayer? Here's a question. What is it that's stopping you right now from being in this type of relationship where we follow Jesus together? What's in the way? What's keeping you from that? What would you need to repent of? What would you need to trust Jesus to be and do for you if you were to be in that? Those are really important questions. Lord, help us today to love you. Help us to understand that you 
only call us to things that are really good for us because you love us. Help us to trust you that you know how life works best for us. And you proved that you were looking out for our good by giving yourself to die for us. Thank you, Jesus. Help us to be people, no matter what we know of our own background, that trust you and your heart more than we doubt ourselves today. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.